0: We kick it off with mobility pricing. Now, this is amazing. Mobility pricing, basically, you charge drivers a fee to raise money for transportation and transit improvements. So congestion fees, use of road fees, are these fees coming at you, Metro Vancouver drivers? Now, when during the election campaign, I had John Horgan on the show, and I asked him straight up, can you guarantee Metro Vancouver drivers will not get walloped with these taxes? Here's what he told me.
1: I want to hear what TransLink has to say, and then uh, we'll go from there. I, okay. I just said to you, it is not a provincial mandate. It's not our intention to impose uh, road pricing. Okay. I, I don't want to override people who are working on something until I got a chance to sit down and talk to them.
0: Okay, that is John Horgan saying he doesn't want to step on toes here. TransLink is looking at mobility taxes. And now check out what Vancouver is doing. They've got an emergency climate action plan. It includes what they call transport pricing. So it would be a fee to drive into downtown Vancouver. You would have to pay up. How much would you have to pay? Well, according to the plan that's been released by city council, they're thinking they could raise tens of, of millions of dollars with these mobility fees in vancouver okay let's talk about this right now my guest is brad west the mayor of port coquitlam very pleased to welcome him back to the show brad how are you mike thanks for coming out we're also standing by for craig cameron who's a city councillor of west vancouver and we're just having a little trouble hooking up with him but i think we're going to get him any minute here but let me go to you first brad west mayor of poco what do you think of this idea we talked about this the other day what are your thoughts on it
2: Well, my my concerns are obviously that for a whole number of people in our region, uh, driving is not a choice, it's a necessity. It's a necessity because where they live, uh, they don't have other viable alternatives. And, you know, people do pay uh, already uh, general income taxes, uh, they pay fuel taxes, they pay uh, carbon taxes. to a number of taxes, uh, some of which go towards uh, uh, go towards transportation. Right. Uh, and you know, to layer this on, on top uh, at a time when you know people are really struggling, I, I'm just uh, have real concerns about the the inequity of okay. that, depending on where you live in the region. Okay. Let me go to
0: Craig Cameron now, city councillor in West Vancouver. Craig, thanks for joining us. Hi, right, thank you for having me, Michael. Okay, what is your point of view on this? You've got I know you've got different feelings on it.
1: Well, I Brad and I agree on a lot of things. We we agree that we need transit infrastructure built across the region, both in Syria and Vancouver, but then also in the northeast and on the north shore. So we really are both supporters of transit and we both agree that any system that is put in place has to be fair. Uh, absolutely, we have to make sure there's social and regional equity, and that it doesn't unduly uh, burden any uh, particular uh, groups. But the problem is, is we're facing a really huge financial uh, shortfall in traveling on many levels. Um, we have COVID-related uh, ridership increases uh, to the extent that we had to get, uh, in a sense, emergency funding from the federal and provincial government to keep the lights on until the end of next year and on top of that so that's in the hundreds of millions of dollars in a whole, uh we have uh fuel tax revenues that are going down because of increased electrification so over the next 10 years we're looking at half
0: a billion dollars okay okay let me let me just interrupt you for one second counselor we got a we got a real patchy uh cell phone signal from you there i mean i can hear you pretty good but we'll, we'll see if we can clean that up but let me go to brad west i guess the the bottom line mayor west is you know, someone's got to pay the piper here. People want these transit improvements. Everyone wants SkyTrain. They want bridges. They want they want more bus service. They want it all. So the money's got to come from somewhere. So what is wrong with this? Why not go to this mobility pricing?
2: Well, certainly, I if you agree don't go to mo-
0: it- if you don't go to the mobility pricing, where do you get the money?
2: Right. So just because there's a need for money doesn't in of itself uh, get mobility up. up- pricing a pass to say, okay, we need money, so let's do mobility pricing. You have to examine these things and, uh, and, and consider the pros and cons of the variety of options that exist uh, to fund uh, transit infrastructure. Uh, for me, I have real concerns that uh, mobility pricing will reinforce a regional inequity that already exists in Metro Vancouver, where you have people who are moving in droves, further and further away from Vancouver into places like Port Coquitlam and Maple Ridge and Langley because of affordability. There's, I mean, the the reality is there's just not the transit system uh, that exists out here that that does in Vancouver. So people aren't driving because uh, they want to drive. They're driving because they have no no alternative. My my concern is that reinforces uh, inequity. There are other ways to uh, fund the transit system, and you know the 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 God's honest truth here is that there there's no silver bullet. There's going to have to be a multitude of things. I have suggested uh, that one of the things we should be looking at is the incredible uh, windfall uh, uh, profits that get generated when the region's taxpayers invest in rapid transit. In an area, because let's take Broadway for example. So the the region's uh, taxpayers, including people in Port Coquitlam, and Surrey and Langley, all over the place, are paying uh, to build that uh, subway, which is you know is fine. What happens to the property values uh, for developers along that corridor? They go through the roof, and you see the the development that comes with it: uh, high density development. Uh, it seems to me that there is some logic in the idea, and this is done in many other jurisdictions, that the region's taxpayers should see some return on, on their investment, should be able to get a portion of that wealth that's been created okay. by the region's taxpayers through that investment.
0: Okay, you you made that argument with, with some sort of a, a levy, on, I guess, on developers, but let me go back to Councillor Craig Cameron there in West Vancouver. Councillor, what can, do you think of that idea? Can, can you hear me fine now, Mark? Yeah, that's Yeah, go ahead.
1: Okay, sorry, but it's a bit of a long-line issue. I agree with Brad that we should be exploring all options. What I heard him say yesterday on your show was that we should take mobility pricing off the table, and that's what I'm objecting to. I'm not saying I'm a proponent of mobility pricing, but I think it's very premature to take any options off the table. Land value capture that Mayor West is referring to is definitely one of the tools that's being explored and should be used. The best data we have says that that's only going to cover about 10% of our future needs which are in the billions and so it's only part of the picture but more importantly land value capture it's not free money that is coming out of monies that cities can levy to pay for parks and community centers it's coming out of a uh, room that cities can use to incentivize affordable housing like rental housing and it's coming out it's also being added to the price of housing by developers uh potentially which is also hurting affordability so brad is entirely right that there's no silver bullet. The thing is, with mobility pricing, it can be done in many different ways. And I share Brad's concern about equity and fairness uh, between income levels and regions. But there are ways you can design the system with rebates and such. There are many, many ways you can design the system so that it is fair and that it's actually progressive. And it's being explored in many areas uh, to do just that
0: pricing in metro vancouver vancouver looking at this plan they would charge you to come to down and drive in vancouver say it could raise tens of millions of dollars a year this is not passed yet it's a proposal translink has been looking at it too what do you think about it my guests are craig cameron west vancouver city councillor brad west mayor of poco let's go to your calls graham and delta hi graham
2: hi i just want to make a comment that as a taxpayer i just we just can't keep taking these hits just it, government has to learn to live within its means. If transit revenues are down, then where's the layoffs? Where's the CEO stepping up and saying, I'll take a 10% pay cut? We just can't keep absorbing these hits. It's, it's just not possible.
0: Okay, Councillor really. Cameron, what do you say to that? Well, I'm obviously sympathetic to people
1: as tax burden, but the question is, we've got a region that's growing by a million people uh, until 2041, and we have... Uh, traffic congestion in the region and there's something we have to do about it we've got to build subways we've got to build bridges the massive bridge eight to ten billion dollars that money has to come from somewhere the alternative is we're stuck in gridlock i wish there was a magical world in which we could have all these things and not have to pay for it but it doesn't exist so we've got okay. to find the best way to pay for it and i think mobility pricing is a better way to pay for it than income taxes for example which is where your federal and provincial contributions are coming from. Okay, Make, Mayor- the, user, make, make the users of the service pay for it, Right, uh, and, and just like we did with the Coquihalla Highway. I mean, that makes, makes a lot of sense.
0: Okay, back to the phone lines. Let's speak to uh, Leslie and Burnaby. Hi, Leslie.
3: Hello, my dear. I heard Hi. a
4: whole bunch of this on Charles Adler about a week ago with his female guest, and I hope he gets her on again because she was talking about... Um, they're, they're going to be putting some kind of a tracking device on your vehicle, and yeah. they will be able to track where you go, how hard you put your brake on, how fast you're going in the 30-kilometer zones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this is just going to be horrendous. Uh, to go over the bridge, it'll be 8 bucks one way, 6 bucks to come back. And she also asked Horgan about this, and she said his reply was, uh, I'm not doing
2: this,
0: okay? Yeah, that's right. I mean Horgan, John Horgan has said this is not in the NDP platform, and he's right, it's not. But the thing is, there's only one taxpayer, and if the TransLink brings it in, or Vancouver brings it in, or other municipalities bring something like this. It, I don't know. It doesn't really matter who's inflicting it, which level of government. It's still money coming out of your pocket. But there's a number of ways that we can des- you can design a mobility pricing system. Let me go to, back to Mayor Brad West. And the caller's right. You can put, like, transceivers and transducers or whatever on cars so you can monitor how far they've driven. And you can charge them by the kilometer, the per kilometer rate that they drive. That is possible. It's done in other in other jurisdictions but your your point earlier Mayor West about trying to leverage property values wouldn't that would that not increase the cost of homes
2: well look when there's value that gets created uh, because of the investment that the taxpayers make into uh, SkyTrain or rapid transit in a region um, that act alone increases property values so um, you know, last time I looked, most developers weren't giving homeowners a break uh, because they got a windfall profit because of, uh, of the region building SkyTrain. Uh, they still charge whatever the market can bear for, for homes. I mean, if you look in those quarters where Broadway and the rest of it, they're not exactly beacons of affordability. Um, yeah. There are a number of different ways that, um, you know, mobility pricing can be done. You've, you know, there's the per kilometer, there's congestion uh, uh, fees at certain points. Uh, right. You know, what happens is there's a lot of conflation of, you know, what exactly is the purpose? Is the purpose to raise revenue? Is the purpose to, uh, you know, d- to address congestion? Because here's one of the challenges to be able to address congestion the price, the fee has to be high enough. It has to be punitive enough that it makes people choose an alternative. I mean, we, we saw well, this right. with uh, the Portman Bridge. The tolls on the Portman Bridge and the Golden Years Bridge are very familiar with it. A lot of people in Port Coquitlam who work uh, south of the Fraser and were having to pay, uh, you know, $1,500 a, a year to go to work. Uh, so what did they do? Did they stop going to work? No. They drove around and took the Patello. Yeah. Yeah, so it yeah. displaces a lot of like this idea. Of just you know somehow people magically don't have to go to work anymore. or Magically don't have well, to get their kids around. It it displaces people. Find alternatives to try and uh, save money. Part, so part, I of, guess the, part it, of the part it, of the plan it decongest certain routes, but yeah. not others. Part of the plan
0: in Vancouver is is right there in black and white. In the plan is to try to get people to stop driving. That is part of the plan. Let's squeeze in one more call here in the minute we got left. Bill in Richmond, you got to go quick though. Okay.
1: Hi. So so. uh so what does that mean then? Who was just talking? Brad West? So what does yeah. that mean? Only the rich people can drive? You know, what, what are you doing here? So you, why don't you, if, 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 if the answer is uh, environmental, then this should be a, based on a points-based system, just like when you get a speeding ticket. You get enough
0: speeding tickets, you, you lose your license. Make it fair for everyone, not just the rich people can drive around. What are you doing here? All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that spike in COVID-19 cases in British Columbia. We see hundreds of new cases over the last few days. Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, yesterday saying that she's hoping people will mask up. That's her expectation. If you're out in public in an indoor space, she expects you to mask up. Not a mandatory order, though. Here's what she said yesterday.
5: It is now the expectation that people will wear a non-medical mask in public spaces, It's not an order because this is something that I know we support as part of our um, mutual responsibilities to protect ourselves and to protect each other. My expectation around masks as we're going into this respiratory season and we know that COVID is still with us is that we will all be wearing masks in public spaces.
0: Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry, that was her speaking on Monday actually. So the expectation is that people will mask up. Not a mandatory order, but should masks be mandatory in indoor public spaces? Let's talk about this now with my guest, Doctor Dr. Anna Wolak. She is with Masks for BC. They are doctors who support mask uh, manda- mandatory masks. Doctor Wolak, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me. What do you think about what Doctor Henry is saying here? That she she says it's an expectation that people will mask up. I think a lot of people are doing that, but certainly not everybody. Do you think it should be mandatory?
4: So, the statement from Dr. Henry is welcome for sure. It's a step in the right direction. Um it's it's something that that sets sets the expectation, but at the same time we were expected to keep Thanksgiving small, but now we're seeing what happened after that expectation was not met. We were expected to do some, maintain some distance during the summer, but there were parties that were seen on social media and that mandate needed to come in to um, decrease those, those parties. It, I mean, I would hope that British Columbians meet Dr. Um, Henry's expectations, but from experience, it looks like it may not be happening. And so a mandate would be needed to sort of um, make sure those expectations are actually met by British Columbians.
0: Right. Are masks uh, mandatory in many other jurisdictions?
4: So in... um, Ontario, um, Quebec, um, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland, there is a provincial-wide mask mandate. Um, Manitoba and Alberta have mask mandates in most parts of their provinces, uh, most parts of those provinces. It's only in B.C. and P.I. and and the territories where there are no um, mask mandates.
0: Why why do you think there should be a mandate make mandatory make mask wearing mandatory?
4: So one of the things with living through a pandemic is the science is evolving. So, you know, in March people were saying no masks are only needed for the healthcare workers and wearing a mask improperly could actually get you sick. And the science has been evolving over the past what are we now, seven months that we've been in it, and we're showing that masks are actually beneficial for not just the healthcare workers, but for everybody. Now, because the science is evolving, there has been inconsistent messaging, and that is confusing the public. It confuses um, healthcare workers as well. So a mandate would give a nice, clear message that no masks work, we need to wear masks to protect ourselves. We need to wear masks to protect others. We need to wear masks so that on top of all the other layers of protection that we've been doing, we need to wear masks so that we can get through this pandemic as unscathed as we possibly can. And once we cut through and give that clear message, then we can focus on, on things like education and how to wear the mask properly and how to clean a mask and what sort of mask and when, mask should, when, when, when should masks not be worn and that sort of thing. So if the mask mandate will make things easier for
0: everybody, especially as we're heading into winter. Speaking to Dr. Anna Wolak, she's from the group Masks for BC, a group of BC doctors on this issue. Uh, I wonder if doc, in the back of Dr. Bonnie Henry's mind, she's thinking if, if you go too far with a mandatory order, a mask mandate, you must wear masks in indoor public spaces by a direct order from her. If she's concerned that, about a potential backlash or if people who cannot wear a mask for a medical reason or some other reason that she has flagged as as possible situations where people cannot wear a mask, that those people might be targeted uh, and that we get into trouble that way. What are your thoughts?
4: I do wonder if there is something like that. And I know she had mentioned it um, sometime in the summer where there was a concern about where mask mandates, the talk about it was first being brought up Um, Yes, there are medical reasons for people not to wear a mask, but that should be between the person and their physician so they can talk things through and and decide about the mask exemption. But they would be few and far between Um, with regards to um, disadvantaging people who, like, say, can't afford masks or don't have ready access to masks. Right. Um, one of the things that our group is pushing for is that we try to make these more accessible to people. I know when Transit introduced their mask mandate, they were handing out masks at the stations. And there are community groups out there that are sewing um, non-medical masks to give to people who otherwise would not have access to masks. With regards to backlash, I know people are talking. I, I've heard it. I, I I see it on news. I've seen it on social media where people talk about like taking away the freedom. Um, people's individual yeah. freedom, but that's actually completely opposite of what we want. We're looking at masks as like the a, just short of a vaccine. This is the last step that we can do to add the layers of protection so that we can avoid a lockdown. You know that mm. that cases are rising. and when I looked at it, the percent positivity rate, which is the number of um, positive tests versus how many people are being tested, it was five point two. When we went on a lockdown in March, that number was um, 2.4 right, on March right. 17, And so our numbers are going up. Boston closed schools, and it was 5.5. The World Health Organization said that um, populations should be at less than five for two weeks before opening up lockdowns. We don't want another lockdown. We don't want to take away the freedom. So the mask is actually hopefully the step to help us um, reduce the numbers and therefore maintain the somewhat open economy that we have now.
0: What do you say to the anti maskers out there? And I, I will acknowledge it is a small minority of people that fit into this category, but they certainly make their voices heard. We've seen anti mask rallies in Vancouver. I get Emails, tweets every single day from people who say the masks don't work. Take a look at the alternative science. What are you? T- don't tell the people the truth. The masks are not effective. This kind of it's a very small minority of people who say this, but it is out there. What do you say to them?
4: So there are the um, first, uh, you know, people who there are people who are anxious more than anything, and hopefully the clear cut messaging sort of, okay, now the government is saying that we need to stand behind this. Dr. Henry is saying that we expect masks in public, therefore we will follow what Dr. Henry says. So that hopefully will, will ease the anxiety of a lot of people out there. But certainly there are the rabid anti-maskers out there. And I mean, the science is there. In um, May, there was um, a, an article that came out where they were studying the Asian countries, which were open, but everyone was masking, They said that if we mask 80% of the population, we would drop cases to one-twelfth of the caseload. Not by one-twelfth, but to one-twelfth of what the cases are. Just this week, um, a study in the journal called Nature Medicine came out and said that if we masked 95% of the population, we would save over 100,000 lives in the U.S. by February 2021. In June, there was a meta analysis in the Lancet of 172 studies that studied all layers of protection. So, hand washing, masking, social distancing, staying home when you're sick, getting tested, and it all showed that all of those together did add some, did add protection. Um, And in July, the Journal of American Medical Association studied healthcare workers, and it did show a decreased transmission in the healthcare workers who were who were masked, and it was specifically to um, SARS-CoV-2 and not just the other respiratory viruses. So there are so many more studies out there, and those are like the, the most significant ones that I've just pulled out, but it's right. there.
0: Okay. Do you think that, I, I got the feeling, just listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry's comments on on a daily basis, that she seems to be getting closer, potentially, to a mask mandate, and if we continue to see this spike, this second wave continue to grow here in the months ahead, especially as we get into the respiratory illness season in the winter. I don't know, maybe she gets closer to a mandatory mask order if people do not do it voluntarily. What is your read of the situation in British Columbia? It's interesting that the contrast you just painted there with other provinces and how we're sort of going in a a different direction, but do you think we could get to a point where a mandatory mask order is almost unavoidable?
4: You know what? I like to think I have more faith in my fellow British Columbians and I know yesterday even I was getting um, um, emails from various businesses saying in line with um, Dr. Bonnie's expectation of a mass mandate, masks are now required in this facility and in that facility. So I'm hoping it gives permission to other businesses and other places to, to be a bit more um, enforcing uh, right. uh, of mask wearing and hopefully I mean, we don't want a draconian policy. We don't want people standing in the corners and giving out tickets saying, hey, you're not wearing a mask here. Pay this fine. That's not what we want. We want to do this all together. Um, sadly, I do wonder if a mask mandate is on the horizon because exactly of the fact that we were expected to keep keep distances and we're not. We're expected to keep um, gathering small and we're not. So, it's hard to say, but it, it is likely that it is on the horizon.
0: Dr. Wolak, thank you for being on the show today.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Speaking of the COVID-19 pandemic, a few months ago, I installed this app on my phone, COVID Alert. Remember when the Trudeau government rolled that out? I thought, okay, I'll do my part. I will put this app on my phone. So I still got it on my phone now. When you click on it though, it says people in your province are not able to use this app. Yeah, I still got it on my phone, still kind of working technically, but BC's not participating in it. Have a listen to this here now. This is a government public service announcement about this app. The COVID Alert app creates a random code so that no one will know your name or your location. The app uses Bluetooth to exchange random codes with nearby phones. The code is a randomly generated string of digits and letters that changes every five minutes so it cannot be used to identify you. The app does not have access to your name or address, or your phone's contacts, your location, or your health information. If someone you've encountered later tests positive for COVID-19 and uploads to the app a one-time key they received from their healthcare authority, you'll be notified that you may have been exposed. If you test positive for COVID 19, you can upload your one time key from your healthcare authority. The app will then notify the people you've encountered without revealing your identity. Okay, yeah, so the idea with this app is that uh, this can, app could alert you if you've been in close contact with someone who's tested positive for COVID 19. But does not work in British Columbia. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Jens von Bergman. He's a founder of Dan, uh, the data analyst analysis firm Mountain Math. He's got a PhD in mathematics. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Do you have this app on your phone,
6: too? Yes, I do, and uh, yeah. thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, you bet. So why is BC not using this app, or how come we're not participating in this program?
6: Well, that's a very good question. So um, actually, uh, Dr. Monty Henry was asked this question at a press conference just the other day. And the answer was that um, BC is um, hoping for tweaks in the app to make it better interface or work with how we do contact tracing here.
0: Yeah, let's have a little listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry. Here she is talking, uh, as you described there, about some of the problems with this uh, COVID, uh, COVID alert app and why British Columbia has not signed on to it yet. Here's Dr. Henry.
5: Right now, it's very nonspecific, and it goes back for 14 days, which... To us, um, doesn't make a lot of sense because people are not infectious for 14 days before their test comes back. And I know they've committed to addressing some of those issues, um, but we've not um, reached an agreement to address the issues. Certainly, people can download it, and um, if they're traveling, that would be an important thing to do. Um, but it's not at the point where it would be helpful for what we're managing here in BC for our pandemic right now.
0: Okay, it's interesting that she feels that this this app is not helpful in British Columbia, but I guess are we one of the few provinces who is not participating in this app? Most provinces are, right?
6: So I think by now we probably have more provinces participating than not. It's been a slow onboarding of provinces, starting with Ontario, and I think that's about right now.
0: Right, and when you heard her describe there some of the problems, she mentioned that it can go back 14 days, which she thinks doesn't make sense because people are not necessarily infectious uh, for a 14-day period. What does she mean there? Like, Can you describe how this app works in that 14-day window?
6: Right, so um, what we have here with the app is, with any app like this, there's always a trade-off between privacy and sort of, Um, the amount of information we can get from this. So the more information we can extract from this kind of app, the higher the chance that there is maybe a possibility to um, sort of reconstruct uh, who somebody is in the system. And um, overall, this app is very well designed with extremely high um, um, emphasis on privacy. And I think no matter how it's implemented, it's still going to be quite quite well in private, but what we have here is that when somebody is um, infected and uploads their randomly generated codes, like was described at the beginning of the segment, it will upload all the things that you've said or that you the codes your app have, has sort of put out publicly for others to, to record. It'll put up the whole two weeks of them onto the server. And so it sounds like um, Dr. Bonnie Henry would like to narrow that down and only... Um, upload a subset of this. What happens is that if you up, um, upload the entire week w- or two weeks worth of, of codes that um, some people might get notified that, um, that they have been possibly exposed that really weren't in any danger because they've been outside of the time window where the infected person was actually infectious. Right. Yeah. Doc- um, so you're, you're casting yeah. a broader net than may be necessary Right. On the downside, um, if you're starting to narrow things down like this, it, it increases the chances that people might be de-identified in some way or another.
2: Right.
0: Dr. Henry has said that she would like to the the app to be uh, modified to work in the in the ways that she feels would be effective here in British Columbia. So let's let's have a little listen to that. So here's Dr. Henry again here talking about how BC would like to see the app work.
5: What we really would like to see is an app that we could um, download when we're at um, a celebration or a party or a church service um, so that we can identify those specific times when there may have been somebody uh, with COVID who was in that vicinity.
0: Dr. Henry speaking the other day. Yeah, we've seen a spike in COVID cases in British Columbia in the past few days and a lot of them have been connected to to big parties and celebrations and, and weddings. So, I I guess she would like to see some kind of app that would effectively trace for that. Is is that possible? Like what is what do you think that she wants to see or what do you think would be a more effective app for us here in BC?
6: Well, so so this gets tricky. So, from what she's saying, she's asking for time and location. And this is something that's not possible within the framework of the COVID to the national COVID app, which uses the Apple and Google APIs. Simply location is not something that is a possibility at all. So these kind of apps that are based on this contact tracing um, cannot use location. That is by design. Um, they are restricted never to use your location data at all. So um, you would need a specialized app, and BC actually has um, toyed with this idea. And uh, the problem there is, of course, that some of these decisions were made with privacy in mind. Once you add location information, you basically can't guarantee privacy anymore. And that's why these decisions were made for this type of contact tracing up to not do location ever.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's interesting because it, it gets down to, I guess, a balance between public health priorities and personal privacy rights of individuals. So, I don't know, what are your thoughts? As a math guy, do you think that we should be willing to give up maybe a little bit of privacy rights in order to, for the greater good of fighting this virus? Uh,
6: To some degree, I think we should. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think location data is the right way to go, though, because Mm -hmm. um, I can see how if I'm looking from the perspective of doing contact tracing, having all this information would be really valuable, right? So in theory, we could have that information right now already um, by simply going into cell phone location records that are available. Your cell phone companies know roughly where you are um, simply by knowing which um, which phone towers you're connecting to, they can triangulate your position, probably within 50 meters fairly accurately in in a city kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And so, but we don't do this. And there's actually, uh, I don't know of any country that does this, at least not of any um, sort of democratic country that does this. And we have very high restrictions on this kind of location information. And it's not really needed for contact tracing. The idea of these tracing apps is that it requires compliance from the user. Somebody needs to actually install the app. So the more invasive you make it, the fewer people will install it, and you lose out that way. So I don't think location data is uh, the way to go at all here.
0: Okay, it's a very interesting balancing act as we try to get this right. Thanks a lot for coming on with your analysis today.
6: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about bad behavior when it comes to kids soccer. And I'm not talking about the players on the pitch. I'm talking about parents on the sidelines. Now, I'm a soccer dad. I had two boys go through minor soccer. Great sport. Absolutely love it. I think it's great for kids. I have seen some bad behavior by parents. Over the years, anyone who's involved in amateur sports knows what I'm talking about. Sometimes you see people harassing the ref, saying unkind things to kids while they're trying to just play a game. It can be bad. But I'll tell you what, I don't think anything is as bad as I've heard about what's going on in in Chilliwack with some of the abusive behavior that's happened there. Uh, Threats, even borderline threats of violence. They even had to bring in private security guards there. Wow, this is a story a lot of people are talking about today. Very pleased to welcome Andrea Laycock to the show now. She is the chair of Chilliwack FC, Chilliwack Football Club. Andrea, thank you very much for coming on.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, Andrea, tell me what's happened here at, at your games.
3: Well, we, we've we uh, implemented, as we have to, the contact tracing policies so that we can ensure that if an outbreak happens, we can reach people and let them know, and uh, as, as that happens, as the games continue and go on, uh, parents have become more frustrated as you were know, getting given the information. And now because of the, the restrictions that have been in place all summer of maximum of 50 uh, in our venues, we have to restrict the number of people that can come in. And we've limited uh, the kids to one supporter to a maximum of uh, 50 in our in our venues. And that's causing some real grief with parents and for our contact tracers who are just trying to do the job and the parents are becoming belligerent ignorant and swearing and overly aggressive with them.
0: Okay. Can you describe some of the incidents that you've seen or you've heard about?
3: Uh, you know, literally verbally undressing these wonderful ladies sitting at the table, um, doing, their, doing the dirty work for us, uh, calling them out, calling them names, blowing past them, uh, saying that they don't have to do this, that they're good. Um, what they're missing, the point is we're just trying to keep everybody safe. Right, and making sure that the kids can stay on the field by following the provincial health orders that are in place.
0: Okay, so the rules that you have in place, of course, this is all due to the COVID nineteen pandemic. So, so what happens when you when you've got a, a soccer game happening there with with, with your Chilliwack team? So pe- people have to sign in if they want to yeah. stand on the sidelines, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course we're limited as everybody else is to the number of people that can be in there. And yeah. if we reach capacity, you know, we we try and calmly say to people, "Can you please, you know." Just give us a couple of minutes and you know, hopefully somebody leaves and we can get you in. It's, we're not trying to block people from being a part of their children's experience. We're just trying to make sure the rules are followed.
0: Yeah, so people have to give their names and then you have a limit. Did you say it's it's just one supporter per kid allowed on the yeah. sidelines? Yeah.
3: Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, we're going to exceed that capacity with the number of kids that we have in the club pretty quick that are on the field at one time, right? So we do our best.
0: But yeah, are you uh, you're playing? It, it, are you challenging? Yeah, are you playing outdoors? Yes. So is it is it not possible to allow a few more people in? Like you know, if you have a big soccer pitch, couldn't you spread the parents out pretty effectively around a big soccer field?
3: Sure, if we can get Dr. Henry to alleviate the uh, 50 people rule. mm That's okay. a, that's just a rule, right? And then our the city in Chilliwack has it at 49 actually for for some venues. Purely so that they can have one of their employees come in and out to check the venue and make sure that they're sanitizing and doing what they need to do in between.
0: And and that 50-person limit applies even when you're having an outdoor game.
3: Exactly, yeah. You see it for all, like, weddings and and all these other events that are happening. we are no different.
0: How bad? What are some of the worst things that you've seen?
3: (sighs) You know, people just, people just, bad behavior. Like, I, I just don't understand where people think they can get off treating another person the way they do. I understand we're all tired of the the pandemic and the restrictions that come with it, but there's just no excuse for for poor behavior. And all all our club wants to do is have the kids on the field. We are thrilled at having the kids at the field. Is it a lot more work? Absolutely. But we want the kids on the field and we want everybody that comes to the field to be safe.
0: Okay. Tell me about the private security guards.
3: Yeah, so everybody kind of thinks that they're going to be there all day. That is not the case, but they are going to have a presence throughout the day to ensure people are behaving properly, following the policies. Uh, People just aren't listening to us, so we need somebody with a little bit more clout. Um, And so we felt the drastic measure of hiring a security company to come in and just check and be a presence uh, was necessary. We hope it's not for the entire season, but we'll do what we have to do. We'd much rather put our money into the kids' programming than... Paying a local company to come and do some checking, but right, you know, I, you know, okay. You, is,
0: you sent out a letter to family members. The headline is the abuse and poor behavior must stop. Mm-hmm. What what kind of reaction have you received from people to your letter?
3: He's very supportive, very very supportive from people. He's appalled that uh, that uh, this has happened. Um, I spoke to the mayor this morning. He's very supportive of our 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 letter and our initiatives and uh, we'll do whatever it takes to make sure that we can uh, engage safe soccer here in Chilliwack. Um, yeah, it's been very supportive. There's, you know, as, as there always is, there's the odd person online that says, well, maybe if you just open things up and just did things. That's not the point. You know, the point yeah. is be a safety, but people, very for the most part, appreciate the endeavors we've taken to make sure the, cl- the club is safe and the kids are safe. And there's just a handful that are ruining it for everybody, but they're doing it in such a manner that it's not safe for anybody to be out on the field or in contact with them.
0: Speaking to Andrea Laycock, she is the chair of the Chilliwack Football Club. Uh, You write in your letter, Andrea, that uh, some of the behavior has been horrific and borderline violence. So, like, are people threatening violence?
3: They're getting right in the face of the contact tracers trying to just, collect their information and do their job so that we can keep you know the kids safe and them safe and it's just not acceptable it's just not acceptable you don't do it to anybody at starbucks or when you go into safeway or any of those other places why would you do it to somebody sitting outside in a at a soccer field
0: how old are the kids that are playing
3: we have kids as young as three and ranging all the way up to adults in their 40s
0: Wow. Okay. So this is a big league. So it's not just one team we're talking about here. This is the whole the whole league.
3: It's it's, it's over the course of our club. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How many teams do you have?
3: In excess of sixty.
0: Sixty. Wow. Okay. So you, you guys are a big organization there in, in mm-hmm. Chilliwack. What if what has this been like for the kids? Like you know this can't be this can't be nice for children to see parents acting out like that either.
3: No. And that's just it. It's like what kind of example are these people setting for their children who are generally standing next to them when they're checking in? Um, I think. I think for the most part, the kids are just happy to be playing, but they don't understand, in some cases, they don't necessarily understand all of the, the rules and the regulations. But you know, my bigger concern is what what a kind of a role model is that person losing their mind at the table yeah. for that children or the children behind them waiting to get in.
0: What is what is this sort of the most common complaint you hear from people? Like, are they upset with the one one supporter per kid rule? They Like, they want more people to be allowed on the sidelines? Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the general gist, and I get that. We all get it at the executive level. We would love to go down and just say, "Let's open it up," but we can't. It's a health order. We can't go against the health orders, or what Via Sport and BC Soccer have said. You know, that's the last thing we want to do because then we end, then we stop playing, and if we stop playing, the kids don't play, and then it's just the ripple, the trickle down effect of that is just, just horrific. So, no, we, it, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is for now. Right. And hopefully we can turn a corner and, and open it up.
0: Okay, Andrea, I'm not sure how long you've been involved in, in amateur soccer there. As I mentioned to you, I'm a soccer dad myself. You know, I've seen some bad behavior by parents yeah. over the years, but it, like, is this the worst you've seen?
3: I've been with the club for over 30 years. And uh, if you had asked me the other day, what's the one thing you think you would never do, I don't think I would have said call a security company, come out on Saturday. So it's it's absolutely horrific. And I've seen a lot in my 30 years. (laughs)